It's really good to be back with all of you. I missed you last week. It was a blessing to be able to be with the Saints in New York. And for those of you who didn't know, I was, I was in Buffalo. So picture, I call it the Modesto of New York. It's a, a city about the same size, surrounded by suburbs, surrounded by agriculture. So don't picture Manhattan. That is not where I was. Um, I was in Buffalo and got to worship there. But it is not the same. It's like going and visiting a family, and you enjoy your time there, but... There's nothing like home, so it's good to be back, and uh, to be able to be back and to have the privilege of, of bringing God's word to you. So let's, let's take a moment to pray together. Father, this, this morning I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So it's interesting the things throughout your life that happen that you remember and a lot of what you forget. Some, sometimes, oftentimes, I think it's, the, it's these little seemingly inconsequential experiences are the ones that we remember the most or that have these odd um, consequential impacts on our life. And there was a woman that my wife hired. So my, my wife, uh, prior to and then early on in our marriage, uh, ran a distribution facility, a, a candy distribution facility. So she, she was in charge of hiring and firing lots of different people. And she hired a woman named Cheryl. I still remember her name. I remember her name because Karen would oftentimes come home, or I'd, we would talk after work, and she would talk about Cheryl. Cheryl this and Cheryl that. And Cheryl, Cheryl was, if you've ever uh, watched the Charlie Brown comic strips, or you remember Pigpen? Okay, Cheryl was not a physically... Uh, sorry, I know, a physically um, dirty person. She didn't bring dust with her, but she was like Pigpen in that she, she tracked this attitude and this ethos and this sense of, of um, negativity into the workplace as soon as she arrived. You didn't need to be Obi-Wan Kenobi to feel a, a disturbance in the force when she entered the room. There was just like, oh man, suddenly darkness entered with her. She was just such an absolutely negative human being. I remember that, that was probably not something I would have remembered if that was where the story ended. But one day, she, she finally needed to uh, let Cheryl go. So Cheryl got fired. I don't remember why. And Karen, after work, the, the day that, she, that, that Cheryl left, she said, it was so odd. I walked into work and it was like the birds were singing and the sun was shining and Everybody was happy, and she was wondering, why is this, why, what's different today? And then she realized, oh, Cheryl isn't here. It is, it is a reality that people make a difference in the world. They make a difference in the place that they enter. Some people change the tone in a room for better, or some people change it for worse. Some people bring order where there's chaos in a place. Some people brighten a room simply by their presence. You could probably be thinking of some people like that. Some people bring comfort, others enter a room, and suddenly there's conflict. And the reality is that we, who are here, who belong to God, are worshiping ambassadors. We are worshiping ambassadors of the Lord Jesus Christ. We claim, as such, to have been redeemed, remade by the work of God in our lives. So... God's name can either be glorified 
or blasphemed as a result of how we live our lives. So as we look at our text today, we, Steve, if he wants to, he can approach this text, and there's going to be a lot of delicious, glorious truths that we're not even going to touch today from this text, because we're going to, we're going to read the whole, we're going to read through verse 7, we're going to focus on verse 6, um, but as we do, my hope is that the result will be that each of us will leave with a sense of responsibility sense of responsibility, but more than that, a sense of opportunity for the effect that we can, can and should have on the world around us. So please rise as we read the first seven verses of Psalm 84 this morning. The first seven verses of Psalm 84. How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart And my flesh, they cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home, and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young, a place near your altar, Lord Almighty, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever praising you. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage, As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The autumn rains cover it with pools. They go from strength to strength till each one appears before God in Zion. Amen. Please be seated. The first two verses there in Psalm 63, I don't know if you remember when I preached a a couple of months ago. The first few verses in Psalm 84, also reminiscent of Psalm 63, which I preached on. Here's Psalm, so here's the first two verses of Psalm 84. We just read it. How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, it, it faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. That's Psalm 84. Psalm 63. O oh God, you are my God and earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon your sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. So in both of these texts, there's this, there's this theme of yearning for God. And in both cases, though the contexts are different, the satisfaction for that yearning is found in the same place. God's special presence in the sanctuary. In Psalm 63, from a couple of months ago, the context is a desert Lack, desperate need, a sense of hopefulness, but hopefulness because you, the psalmist looks around and there's, there's no obvious solution to the thirst that he's experiencing and the need that he's encountered. But in Psalm, in Psalm 84, we have a very different context. It's happy. The picture here is a procession of people together walking excitedly toward Jerusalem for a feast. So picture that. Picture some of you love places like Disneyland or the beach, Europe, um, maybe a, a, a party at a friend's house. There are certain things that when you wake up in the morning and you, are, uh, you have this opportunity ahead of you to look forward to, your heart is full and full of excitement and you're anticipating, and especially when you get to do it with the people that you love and that you care about, who share that, that common interest. That's the, that's the picture 
That's the emotional state of the, peop- of the people who are being depicted in Psalm 84. How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. How lovely is your dwelling place. They're thinking of Zion. They're thinking of the place of God's abode on earth. My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God because they are, they're, they're on their way to that place where they get to encounter God in this special way as God's gathered people. So like a starving man whose expectation of satisfaction, so you, you've got this sense of, um, of hunger, but unlike Psalm 63, Psalm 84, have you ever been waiting for Thanksgiving and the hungrier you got, the happier you got because you knew that you were going to have more room? You knew you were going to enjoy it all the more? That's, that's the picture here of the yearning that these saints are encountering. But in both cases, in a cave, in a desert, on the way to a feast, the contexts are different, but the satisfaction is found in the same place. God's special presence in the sanctuary. The context of this psalm gives us a really good picture We hear in verse 2 and 10, they are yearning for God's courts. They're yearning for his altar, for his house. They're excited about the pilgrimage to that house. They're looking forward to the location of the sanctuary in Zion. And so we see in this a character of those making the pilgrimage to Jerusalem that we should reflect on. And so here, here are some of the things we can draw out of this passage. They proceed out of obedience. But it's the kind of obedience that should characterize all those who worship Yahweh. They saw the loveliness of God. They saw the loveliness of God and how his presence made his sanctuary a lovely place. They were people who yearned for closeness to God. Their whole being, their heart, their flesh, thirsted and hungered for satisfaction in him. And they knew that God would indeed satisfy them. There was this there was absolute expectation of faith that God would satisfy them. They saw God's sanctuary as a place of refuge, of provision, of comfort. They saw God, that he cared for the king, but he also cared for the most insignificant of creatures, the sparrow. He was both their king and their God. They saw that blessing comes from dwelling with him. They knew that when they came into his courts, blessing is what they would receive. They understood that their heart must be set on pursuing the worship of God, even through difficulty. There was no better place to be. It almost sounds, as you read it, like a ballad but it doesn't have the kind of saccharine, gross um, sweetness of, I don't even want to say sweetness, of, the, uh, of a modern love song. I'm yearning for you. I desire you. This wasn't an infatuation, though. It was, it was a hope 
It was expectation based on what God had proved time and time again based on his faithful, strong right arm. And so right at the beginning, we've got some application. It's not the main point that I want to drive home, but it's important nonetheless as we encounter it. Whether you are in a desert in the midst of mourning, confused, feeling lost, desolate, okay, that might be what you experience at some point in your life. Or you're overflowing with joy, gladness is just emanating from your countenance, God's goodness is easy to feel. Whether you're on one in experiencing one extreme or the other, or you're somewhere in between, the response in either of these two extremes or anywhere in between is the same. Return to the courts of the Lord. If you're wondering, what do I need to do? In response to my pain or in response to my joy, what do I need to do? It's the same. Return to the courts of the Lord. Enter into worship. Join God's people in recalling the truths that bring and sustain life. And as good and as encouraging as this application is, that's not actually what I want to focus on today. So you can write that down. If that meets the need for you today, I'm glad that you've been fed. But I want you to look at, start at verse 5. We're going to read 5, 6, and 7 again and focus on 6. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage, As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The autumn rains cover it with pools. Verse 7, they go from strength to strength till each appears before God in Zion. So the valley of Baca, the picture here is that they must make their way through a desert, a wasteland on their pilgrimage to Jerusalem, on their way to the sanctuary, on their way to meet with God, they need to walk through well, the Valley of Baca. And Baca is mentioned nowhere else in the scriptures. There's no history of this place called the Valley of Baca. But the Hebrew word Baca comes from the word for weeping. So you've got this picture of a dry place called the Valley of Weeping. It's barren. There's a wasteland. It's a desert, it's a wilderness, it's dry, it's cracked. Life struggles to live there, a threat to human existence and human happiness. I've had this psalm hanging in my shower for like three years, where I I try to memorize scripture there. And I never quite succeeded in memorizing it, but I look at it on a regular basis. Actually, it disappeared when I came back from... New York. I don't know where it went, but it was there until recently, and I would look at it periodically. But in all those years of reflecting on this psalm, I missed Psalm 6. Uh, Not Psalm 6, verse 6. I missed it. There was was something going on in verse 6 that I didn't notice after years of looking at this. I listened to a bunch of of sermons on this psalm to try to hear the application. And pretty much the consistent life application of this psalm was what we've already talked about. If you're walking through your valley of Baca, you will come out the other end and there is joy. That's basically the application. And that's true. 
It's a good application. But there's something else I think is even more marvelous. I think it's more marvelous because this first application, though it is true and good and helpful for my own personal edification, we tend, don't we, to be self-centered people. We come here to this body oftentimes because of the need that we have, and that's good because God wants to meet your need, and he can. But oftentimes, that's kind of where it ends. And verse 6 tells us something that moves us out of ourselves. Something happens as God's people touch their feet on parched ground. Look at verse 6 again. As they pass through the valley of Baca, something happens. They make it a place of springs. The autumn rains cover it in pools. Something happens as their song of celebration reverberate through the rocks and the hills of that dry and desolate land. Wherever they walk, the picture is a rush of life-giving water pours out from these walking worshipers, and what they leave in their wake is fertile, verdant, full of life, growing, redeemed, restored. Dry holes full of only darkness are left pools of life-giving water. Springs of water give fresh life to land, and pools of clear water are ready to receive parched drinkers. Now, I could stop there, and I might be accused of being an advocate of the social gospel, you know, go out and make a difference in the world. So in order to be careful not to be accused of that, where does this life-giving water come from? In John 7, verses 37 and 38, we see this, another really beautiful uh, and inspiring picture On the last day of the feast, we're told, the great day Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This text itself, with all the rich imagery associated with the feast in which it took place, and the water rite that was performed in the middle of it, it's beautiful. It could be a sermon all in and of itself, but... But take a note of the source of the water that brings life here. You must, says Jesus, if you want to be full and you want to overflow, you must come to him to drink living water. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. This is the same message he gave to the woman at the well three chapters earlier in John. Water so satisfying, water so plentiful that you'll never thirst again. But notice what happens, says Jesus. When you come to him to drink... Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow not a trickle, not a drip, a river of living water. I don't know if that is as impactful to you as it is to me because I've spent a lot of times a lot of time on rivers. And rivers cannot be controlled, they cannot be contained. They are you've got heavy water moving at at a at a with great force, you cannot contain it. 
out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. It's like putting a fire hose in your mouth and trying to drink. You're not big enough. You're not strong enough to contain or to manage the bounty that God provides when you come to him. This is the picture that Jesus is giving to us. Where does this water come from? Rather than destruction, I mean, you can imagine putting a fire hose into your mouth. You can imagine the damage that it would do to your body. But that's not what happens. When you, when you drink the water that Jesus gives, you don't die. This is life-giving water. But it has to go somewhere. And so it pours out of your heart as a living, life-giving river. The source is Jesus. You don't have anything to boast in except that you are privileged to be a conduit through which this living river is to pour. And what does this living water do? That brings us back to Psalm 84. As this life-giving water pours out of us, it finds the thirsty soil, the empty holes, and it fills them, leaving life where there was once death. Have any of you ever watched The Wizard of Oz? And it all starts out in black and white and gray monochrome, and then suddenly she enters into Munchkinland, Oz, and everything turns to color. That's the picture that I get here. As God's people walking toward worship enter into a place, it goes from gray and desolate to full of color and life. Another picture that I, I got as I was reflecting on verse 6 is you take a bulldozer and imagine a, a green forest full of birds and animals, all happy. Picture Disney animals, Disney trees, happy trees with songs. And you take a bulldozer and you begin, what does a bulldozer do? Children, what does a bulldozer do to a, to a forest full of happy animals and green trees as you drive that bulldozer through? It turns everything upside down. It uproots life. And if you were to look, you look ahead of the bulldozer, it's green and beautiful and happy birds. And you look behind you, just dirt, death. Let's reverse it. The world in which we live, it's not difficult to see. Just think for a moment about Ukraine. Just go around the corner and you can see homeless encampments. This world is a valley of Baca. This world is dry and cracked and full of death, difficult to inhabit in. But what's the picture that God gives to us? Is that ahead of us is that desert wilderness, but as we walk through it, you look behind and what should happen as we step onto that land? We should look back and we should see life. We should see moisture. We should see gladness. Beauty. We should see joy behind us as we walk. Order from chaos. Color where there was just black and white. Peace where there was conflict. Longing should be replaced with satisfaction. Weakness that was ahead of us, behind us should be strength, disorder replaced by order and purpose. So here's the, the application. 
what is the effect that you're having on the world around you? What's your reputation? Are you, as you, as you walk through life and then you look behind you and you take an accurate assessment of the, the effect that you're having on your life, we see in Psalm 84 the clear picture of what ought to be. But are you a source of life? Is the world a more beautiful place physically? Is there more order? Is there joy? Is the world cleaner? Is it more purposed? Is it safer? Is it productive because you pass through it? What's the result of your presence in your home? Just think for a moment. And as I walk through my home, what's left in my wake? Is it this beautiful picture of life that we're given in Psalm 84, verse 6? Your workplace, your neighborhood, your church, your conflicts. As you walk through your conflicts and your disagreements, what are you leaving in your wake? Your posts on social media, what is the result of that? If springs of living water are not flowing out of you and then into the world around you like a, like a river flowing from your stomach, then what is getting in the way? Christian, what's getting in the way? Be honest. It may be that you have not actually come to the source of the overflowing river of life. What is the source of the overflowing river of life? Who is the source of the overflowing river of life? It's Jesus Christ. If you look behind you and you're like, this is not Psalm 84, 6 in my life. They are not, that's not the picture I'm getting. It's possible that you have not yet met the source of that life-giving flow of water, Jesus Christ. You cannot manufacture it on your own. You bring a broken and muddy cistern. That's the best you can do. A hole in the ground that puddles up with muddy water, undrinkable. So if you don't know the life-giving source of that water, if you've never really encountered Jesus Christ, if you've never surrendered to him, the first place to start is to surrender, to turn to him. There's no, there's no way you can look back in your life and you can see the kind of life that is supposed to come from you if you don't know the source of that living water. But if you know him, then there may be sins that have clung to you, maybe for years, that are getting in the way. Here are some of the things that can get in the way. Common things. Fear. Fear will get in the way of the kind of effect that we should be having in the world that we inhabit. Fear. I'm going to just let that one sink in for a moment because I know that fear is still... If it's not rampant in this church, it is still a common robber of joy and effectiveness. Deceit, lust, faithlessness, pride. Oh, there's another one. Pride. We have at times in this church 
throughout the 18 years of our existence, we have, we've been a prideful people. That gets in the way of the kind of life and the kind of life-giving effect that we're supposed to be having on the world around us. But so can sloth, excuse-making, finger-pointing, anger, bitterness, apathy, self-sufficiency. As we, as we go through the, this, this list, as we, as we do this every week, one of the reasons why it's so important to do an accurate and honest assessment of what our life is like is because to be a, to be a Christ follower is more, has, should have more effect than just on our own personal happiness, contentment, and redemption. We should be leaving in our wake that beautiful, life-giving, those pools of water, green, The last thing that I have here that might be getting in the way, and there are others, is that there might be old habits, or unfortunately, the reality is we all bring with us family hang-ups from our past, things that you've inherited from your parents, from your grandparents, that still characterize the liturgy of your life. Some of that might be manifested in some of the things that I listed off just a moment ago. It is really, really important that we recognize that the effect that we have on the world is going to be one of two things. We are either going to bring glory to God and bring life behind us, or the name of Jesus will be mocked, and the life that the world needs is going to be obscured. The reputation of God in this world is derived from the collective reputation of you who are sitting here. Here's some things to consider. When a woman with humble confidence is encountered by somebody who doesn't know Christ, shouldn't the world immediately assume, oh, that woman must be a Christian? When a group rents a facility and leaves it better than they found it, cleaned and repaired, shouldn't those who come after them think, oh, those must be Christ followers? When you enter into a conflict, which happens on a regular basis, and you you enter into that conflict with deep love, a desire for peace, a willingness to be defrauded, if that would shock the world, your opponent should leave what should have been a struggle with the response, that man must be a Christian. He was so purposeful in showing me love that I didn't deserve. When the world wonders why orphanages are emptying, they should blame Christians. When parks are being planted and cultivated, that should be blamed on Christians, quite literally leaving it green behind us. When quality beer or coffee are winning national awards, people should assume it's the craftsmanship of Christians. 
we should be known as the Puritans were, as those who are too happy to be true. When I say that, I do not mean that sorrow and sadness do not have a place in our experience. I don't want you to misunderstand me. But there is a way to be joyful, glorify God, and leave this beautiful life-giving wake behind us. And there is a way to be sad and sorrowful and to mourn and to leave and to do so in such a way that God is glorified and we leave this life-giving wake behind us. So when nurses watch us at the deathbeds of our loved ones, And see an impossible mixture of mourning and joy, hope and sadness. They should know we're Christians without even asking. And when we see their tears, we should be kind, the kind of people who notice and have life-giving words ready to offer them. When our children leave our homes and they have purpose in life and joy in their hearts and love for the world, they should look back and know for certain it's because they were nurtured in the fertile fields of a Christian home, dependent on the overflowing love of Jesus Christ. A home in which worship was a way of life, not reserved for one or two hours on Sunday. There are two ways to respond this morning to all of this. You can respond in joy or you can respond in despair. Joyful gratitude for the opportunity opened up for God's people to bring noticeable life to the world. Joyful repentance for the mercy that God has given to his people. So no matter what the mess is behind you, you have the opportunity to see life begin to grow as you step through that valley in thankful, faith-filled obedience. That's one choice. Whether you look back and you can see, God has been so present in my life and I, the sanctification that I've, ex- I've experienced is so obvious. Or you, you look back and you go, man, what a disaster. You can respond to both of those situations in joy as you look to Jesus or the opportunity You can respond in despair at what you see when you look behind you. You can respond with regret, without hope. What was the context of Psalm 84? Well, it begins in worship. What we worship is expressed in what we find beautiful and desirable and satisfying and what we call good. As the psalmist puts it, what we find lovely. What our hearts faint for. What we cry out for what we marvel at, that the insignificant and unlovely sparrow knows she is at home and her children are safe in the home of God. We all have a tune that pulses through our hearts and animates our lives. The question is not whether you will be singing, but what song you will be singing. As you're making your pilgrimage through life, what song are you singing? The song of Marvel as you encounter God's world, the song of trust as you endure the valley of weeping, the heart hymn of gratitude rather than the noise of griping, 
The song of seeing everything for what it is, a gift, the unfolding story of God redeeming not only you but the world, the song of feasting, as we embrace the table that God has set before us, whatever it may contain. You cannot give what you do not have. You cannot give what you don't have. And the source of life is only to be found in a life overwhelmed by Jesus Christ. When we were created, we were designed to feast on the presence of God. That is why we were built, put into this place. All human hearts were designed for this. God has always been and always will be the food that feeds our souls and that waters and brings life to us. He gets the most glory as we come to him in recognition of this fact. We only have one mediator who makes approach to God possible, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we come, we find not only pardon, but a feast and a fountain. We have an opportunity, brothers and sisters, Christians, not simply to drink ourselves from the fountain that will never run dry. We have the privilege of living like men and women who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, evidenced in his broken body and his shed blood. How is it that we can truly drink from the well that never runs dry? How can we eat the bread of life and then not show forth the effects of that to the world around us, to not have that water overflow the banks of our own hearts? Jesus is an ocean of provision. So we're invited to do our best to consume an ocean. And when our hearts prove too small, to laugh as the water spills the banks of our hearts, bringing life to the world around us. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. This morning, brothers and sisters, as we reflect on these things, we, we end our service as we, we do every week, remembering the fellowship that was secured by the shed blood and the broken body of the Lord Jesus Christ. The result of this meal should be that as we leave, the world is never the same again. Let's pray. Father, we need nourishment and we need strength because the task to which you have called us is glorious and too big for our own hands and would take too much strength. We don't have it in our legs. We don't have it in our hearts. And so we ask, Father, that you would give us all that we need. We reflect now on the kind gift that you gave to us in sending your Son to die for our sins, to conquer death. We thank you for his broken body and his shed blood, but we thank you that he has risen now and he's at your right hand and he is reigning and ruling, conquering us, conquering nations, redeeming the world. We look forward to that day when we, as well as the creation, will no longer need to groan in anticipation, but we'll see finally consummated the great work that Jesus paid for 
in his death and resurrection. We pray, Father, that you would help us in the days and weeks and years to come to be a part of that, a privileged part of that great process of making the world beautiful again, a garden in which to inhabit, and a place of life. We thank you for this all in Jesus' name. Amen.